Welcome to the New Kind of Band Podcast. This is episode 37, and we're becoming a wingman with Chad Hennings. Chad Hennings is maybe a name that you're not that familiar with, but you will be in awe of all the things that he's done in his life, and also the humility that you hear in his voice and that you hear when he explains his story. Chad Hennings was an NFL football player. He won three Super Bowl rings with the Dallas Cowboys. He also went to the Air Force Academy, and he also, I'm saying also a lot to let you know his story, and he also was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame, and he also flew A-10s during the first, the first Gulf War and flew 45 combat and humanitarian missions. So he has done a lot of things. He is a high-level guy, but he has just a way of speaking and a way of telling stories. I know you're going to enjoy this one. Uh, the way that he tells the stories is not really in your face, uh, and what he says is not really in your face. It's just a way of welcoming a guy into a conversation. To be honest with you guys, he is the dude who you would just love to sit down and have a cup of coffee with and just ask him questions because you just know that he's humble enough and he's going to give you the truth no matter what it is. He's that kind of guy. I know that you are going to just soak up this podcast that I had a couple months ago with Chad Hennings. Also, today, I wanted to bring to attention uh, some people who've connected with me actually over the last couple months, and these are the people over at Rebel and Create. Ned Shout, and you spell his last name S-C-H-A-U-T, Ned Shout. Ned, such a cool thing. He sent me uh, a book and a journal yesterday in the mail that is amazing. I mean, these are like stellar. These are things that you'd be proud of to put on your bookshelf. He sent me his book that it's a hardcover, no dust cover. I love the classic look, by the way, Ned, when you listen to this. Also, the uh, the Fatherhood Legacy Journal. So it's Father Fatherhood Legacy Journal. So it's super, super rad. I really appreciate the fact that he sent it. Can't wait to dig into both of those things. And thank you, Ned, for that. And I just want to tell you guys, Ned has a podcast also. It's called Rebel and Create. You can find it the same place you found this podcast. Uh, those podcasts are a little bit shorter. They're about 10 minutes or so, not like my podcasts, which tend to be long form. You can listen to his. Oh, yeah. And don't forget to stay subscribed and tuned into the New Kind of Man podcast. I'm not giving you an out here, guys. But do connect with Ned. He's involved in, or he's involved in the podcast all the time, of course, and then also on Instagram. And you can follow them at Rebel and Create, and they are active there. And Ned, thank you so much for these books. There is a shout out for you. I look forward to us connecting maybe in the future, maybe on the New Kind of Man podcast. You never know. So gentlemen, as we are getting ready to hear this conversation, uh, just sit back, take notes, listen, and apply what you hear. Because just like everyone who comes on this podcast, the point of every guest whether it's a Navy SEAL or an author or it's a, a world influencer or somebody who's just a dad with or a man with a compelling story about how he's become a new man, either physically, spiritually, relationally, or intellectually, no matter what the guy's story is, there's always something here for us to apply. This isn't just a listen-to kind of podcast. I'm trying to help you become new men. I am trying to become a new man by listening to and applying what I hear on these podcasts. So if you enjoy this podcast and you're a longtime listener, please give me a, a good rating and review on iTunes. Stay connected, give feedback. And if there's a guest that you would like to hear on the New Kind of Man podcast, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to email me, chat at com. Send me an email and I will see about getting that guest on if you think they fit the show. So thank you very much, gentlemen. Hope you enjoy this podcast. And I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to the New Kind of Man podcast. Today we have the special treat of bringing on three-time Super Bowl champion, Chad Hennings. Welcome to the show, Chad. Hey, pleasure to be with you. And I know that you're doing a lot of other things that are even more important in football. But before we get into what you're doing and why you're doing it, which I want to spend a good amount of time on, I would love for you just to kind of tell us about your upbringing, where you grew up. I know you live in Texas now, but where you grew up and 
how you became the person that you are? Hey, uh, great question. Well, back in the day, well, <laughs> you're right. I do live in the Dallas, Texas area. So once a former Dallas Cowboy, always a Dallas Cowboy. But I grew up in the Midwest. I'm a farm boy from Iowa. Um, grew up on a farm that has been in our family at that time for over 125 years. And we're probably pushing over 150 years wow. now that, it, you know, consisting of our family, our family settled that part, Eastern, East central part of the state of Iowa. So grew up on a farm. We raised uh, cattle. We had a large feedlot operation, you know, worked on the farm, uh, driving tractors since I was about 10, 11, 12 years old. And established a great work ethic. Worked with alongside my father, my grandfather, my brothers, you know, my mom and my sister too. I mean, everybody got out there and got after it. And I think that instilled in me a great sense of, you know, that good Protestant work ethic or the great American work ethic. And I learned a lot about uh, commitment, overcoming adversity. Uh, you know, I was always a great, good athlete as a kid. Um, I had an older brother that really pushed me. And we got great sibling rivalries. I mean, it didn't literally push me, but I mean, he, we competed against one another and we we're, it was very synergistic up through school. So I, being in Iowa, I played football, going to a small school, played football, wrestled, um, baseball, track. I did everything. Had some success in the, in the athletic arena, ended up being a state champion my senior year in wrestling, was an all-state football player. Uh, received the opportunity, started to get little bits of uh, nibbles from different schools interested in me in, in playing football and or wrestling. I always wanted to, to, to play Division I college football, and I wanted to have an experience somewhat unique and not just go to a, a college just to play football and get a degree. Um, so I was very interested in, in the service academies. And I'm going to the United States Air Force Academy. In my four years there, played football, you know, did the whole uh, military experience, uh, full intent of becoming an Air Force, you know, pilot in the Air Force. But then my junior, senior year, my senior year, I had some, you know, kind of had a breakout year on the gridiron where I was unanimous All-American, led the nation in sacks, um, won the Outland Trophy. Well, it ended up being drafted by the Dallas Cowboys in the 11th round. That just goes to show you how long ago that's been. They don't even have 11 rounds in the draft anymore. That's funny because I actually looked that up once, once I saw the 11th round. I was like, that's got to be a typo. There is no 11th round, but there was back right. then. That's right. You know, that was back in 1988. Yeah. So it's been, you know, 32 years ago. Hmm. But, um, but I had this, you know, I really wanted to play. I wanted to, to see if I, quote unquote, had the right stuff to play in the NFL. But I knew that I gave my word to serve my country and to serve the commitment in the Air Force to become an officer. And I wanted to fly jets. So I received waivers for my height and weight because I'm a little on the larger side, mm -hmm. you know, a former defensive tackle to, uh, to fly. So I went through pilot training at Shepard Air Force Base. Uh, received the assignment to fly the A-10 Warthog. Um, you know, at this time too, we can maybe dive into it later, but it was it was difficult for me because where I went through pilot training was about an hour and a half away from Dallas. Mm. And I would get tickets in the fall of the year to go to some of the Cowboy games. And I'd see the guys that I was drafted with, my draft class guys like Michael Irvin, uh, Ken Norton Jr. Mm. Uh, these guys were out there playing. And here I was standing on the sidelines watching them. And really... I struggled with it. I struggled with it, but I knew that to be an individual of integrity and commitment, you know, what God calls us to be virtuous, it, it was, uh, it was tough, but I received the assignment to fly the A-10 Warthog after a year of pilot training, learned how to fly that jet. And I spent two years of my active duty time flying out of RAF Bentwaters in the UK, flying in the Western part of Germany at the time, just as the wall after a wall had come down and then the Gulf War breaks out. Then I spent six months flying out of Insulik, Turkey, flying mm -hmm. into the northern part of Iraq in the first Gulf War and uh, help with, with the uh, operation Provide Comfort, which was where we were protecting the Kurdish people against Saddam Hussein mm -hmm. at that time. And we set up the northern no-fly zone, northern watch. And then during this time, after we won the Gulf War, you know, there was no longer, the Soviet Union was no more. 
Um, the wall had come down, communism was falling over, so our armed forces did what they called a reduction in force, where they downsized and not enough people were getting out, so they waived a lot of commitment time. So they ended up waiving, not just for me, but across the board, a couple of years off of my service academy commitment, as well as my pilot training commitment, the additional commitment I had. So that left me eligible. So what is then, that What is that requirement after you go to a service academy? How, how many years? It is, it is a minimum of five years. Okay. With the additional time of going through to go be a pilot, they up to it was eight years at the time because it was three additional years. Okay. So the basic is just five, but if you go to grad school, if you take on any extra training, they add on to that commitment. So my commitment was eight years. I they just want their money back. Yeah. <laughs> they, want, they want the return on their investment. You That's bet. right. But they, um, you know, uh, as I said, peace broke out and to downsize. So they waived basically half for me at the time it was ended up being half my commitment. So I ended up flying my last mission in Northern Iraq in, um, you know, the early winter spring of 92. And I ended up playing a Super Bowl that same season. Wow. That's how fast life changed for me. So I moved to Dallas uh, with my wife and myself, you know, ended up spending nine years with the Cowboys, as you alluded to, won three Super Bowls, my first four years in the league. And, uh, Still live in the Dallas area now as a businessman, have a commercial real estate company, and I do a variety of you know, public speaking for both uh, on leadership and character development, as well as you know, faith-based with my wingman ministry. Mm-hmm. So do a variety of different things now, but you know, God is good and, and I have been, he has blessed me with a lot of different experiences and have enjoyed life to date. Now let's drill down a little bit. Um, so you grew up on a farm in Iowa. How did that that upbringing, and I'm in a rural place in Georgia. I grew up in in Illinois, rural Illinois, so I'm I'm familiar probably with where you're going with this, but maybe a lot of guys aren't. So, what about uh, that type of lifestyle that helped you and and kind of prepared you, and maybe even perhaps propelled you to go into the service academy? And uh, so, how did how did your upbringing shape you <coughs> and put you in a scenario to to excel at the service academy? At the Air Force I mean, it's foundational. Everything I learned about how to be, quote, unquote, a success in life, um, I learned, you know, growing up on a farm. Hmm. Because you learn those, those inter- intrinsic characteristics about commitment, hmm. about following through with your word, about overcoming obstacles, about how you work as an individual in the confines of a team, because it takes the team to be a success for the mission to be accomplished. Hmm. Learned about the importance of faith, because when you grow up on a farm, you don't know whether you're going to get the rain. You don't know whether the sun's going to shine. You don't know, have any control of the price of your commodity mm-hmm. or the price of your inputs. You are totally arms wide open, praying to God that, you know, you can just, it'll work. Mm-hmm. It'll work. And that's where you truly develop. Farmers have to have an extreme uh, sense of faith just to get through each day because you don't know what tomorrow literally, literally is going to hold. So that for me, it was foundational grow up in that type of environment and you know it's a rural environment life was a little slower you know back in the day we didn't have the internet you know mm-hmm. we didn't have a lot we had three basically four television stations so it's a lot of time for us as kids you, you were outside all the time you played with your friends or you were working outside and and you didn't sit around on computers playing video games yeah that sounds like my upbringing i mean i i grew up outside too and uh in I know you're, you have a couple of years on me, but uh, I absolutely, all my childhood was pre-internet. As a matter of fact, what's kind of funny is I had a, a, I tell people occasionally, I actually remember when email came out because I spent four years in the Navy and I worked on F-18s and I was on an aircraft carrier. So I have, I have a lot of respect for you flying A-10s because if I, if I was in the Air Force, I would want to be around A-10s. I mean, they were the workhorses. They're amazing aircraft. So you know, it so, didn't have all the advanced avionics on it, but who can deny that when a plane was solely designed around a 30 millimeter Gatling gun called a Gowie Avenger <laughs> to shoot and kill tanks and, you know, heavy armament, 4,000 rounds a minute, squeeze a trigger for a second. That's over a hundred rounds of depleted uranium coming out that you could shoot a tank from three miles away. That's as high a testosterone flow as you're ever going to have. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I've, I've been around A-10, so hearing it, and 
I think the engine, the same engine that's on an A10 is on an S3. So I believe. And I, I, I pass. Yeah. And so we call them Hoovers because when you, when you go up on power, it's whoop, 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 whoop. And then, and then once you get into power and the thing is about an A10 or an S3, they are not fast whatsoever. But when it's coming, when it's coming to town and it's coming after you, there's nothing you can do about it because you get that Gatling gun right out the end of it. So I'll, I'll, yeah. mad respect for you and, and your time, uh, time in service. And so it was funny because I remember, you know, kind of dating myself. I remember when email came out and I was in a service center on, on board a ship on my last deployment. And I went into a service center. We shared it. I was in the power plant department. I shared it with the airframe department. And I went in and I got an airframe department. He was at a computer and he's typing this document. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm sending electronic mail. I'm like, what? I'm like, I'd never even heard of it. I was like, electronic mail. He's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm typing this. And my wife is going to get this at work in the morning. When she goes to work in the morning, she's going to get this. I was like, get out of here. Just give me a pen and paper. I'll send a letter home to my wife. Had no idea how small-minded I was. So I totally understand what how life was different prior to electronics, prior to email, prior to internet. And things seemed a lot more simple and certainly on a farm. And, and I love how you said it's, it's a matter of slowing down because I think there's a value point here too. Because I think if we move, just my, my opinion, I think as men, if we move at the pace of culture, we're going we're gonna to outpace Jesus. Amen. That's, that's a great point. So, so I think that's a, a really valuable thing that you said. I just wanted to kind of camp on that for a second. All right. So then you went into the Air Force Academy. And I'm, I'm, I'm overlooking the fact that it's the Air Force Academy, not the Navy Academy, but I, the Naval Academy. I mean, it could have been Annapolis, I'm just saying, but you didn't do that. But I'm cutting you some slack. You're a man of God, so I'm cutting you a lot of slack. And then after that, and you serve, you know, you serve faithfully in, in, in the service following that, Air Force, okay. But then you play for the Dallas Cowboys. Like, that was in the, that was in my, the heart of the time that I was in service, and the real the real ax I have to grind with this chat is my brother is a Dallas Cowboy fan and I'm a Miami Dolphin fan. So every time that the Bills went up against the Cowboys and then ended up getting beat, I'm thinking at least we could have been a different representative from the AFC. I'll give, I'll give you your last word as far as that. Oh, I mean, that's what, you know, <laughs> for those of your listeners, it's always the service banter back and forth. But uh, for sure. my, I just tell people I played for both America's teams, the United States Air Force and the Dallas Cowboys. And that just kind of gets a little bit of rub. But, you know, all props to the Bills. I mean, the Minnesota Vikings, but, you know, the other team that went to the Super Bowl four times and, and lost. And, man, it, uh, it, it unfortunately it just ran into that, that time period in the NFL or the NFC East, whether it was the Washington Redskins, Dallas Cowboys, or New York Giants were mm -hmm. dominant. And they seem to win the Super Bowl every year throughout that time in the 90s. Yeah, you guys had a stout team. I want to dig into that a little bit. You won, uh, you were on the Dallas Cowboys, of course, for uh, nine years, right? You're nine years yeah. in the NFL. Right. And you became a rookie. I thought this was an interesting piece about your story. You became a rookie at 27. So when you left the service, how did, the, how did you end up in uh, – then going to the Cowboys because did they hold your contract open for you while you were in service? Yeah, they there's a provision in the NFL with contracts that state that in, in time of national crisis, i.e., war, mm -hmm. that the teams would retain your rights and that you would retain your rights, whatever contractual rights that you had. So that you know it, it was exercised during the Vietnam conflict, you know, Korean War, mm -hmm. not so much World War II because it really wasn't you know the, the true quote unquote NFL what it is today in the modern era, but. No, they, I signed a contract, you know, when I was drafted by them out of college, you know, I got a, a very small stipend, you know, signing bonus. But, um, but with that, cause I never thought I'd ever play because technically with my, my commitment to be eight years, I would have been 32 years old before I even thought about mm -hmm. playing and getting on the gridiron. And you, you, I mean, you very rarely see anybody 32, let alone, you know, very many 27 year old rookies that mm -hmm. are starting. So I was, you know, very fortunate, and 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 again for me, that tr uh, transferring that that skill set, that knowledge from flying jets in combat, 
and being in a fighter squad or to being in an NFL locker room and getting on, on the gridiron and playing, you know, mentally, it, it was an easy transition. Physically, of course, you got to get used to be taking the hits and the blows and mm-hmm. going through all that. But, but they were very, very comparable cultures. So how did you, I'm just thinking of this question off the cuff, how did you stay at a point of physical readiness from, from flying, which I know is very physically demanding, but that's a whole other level of physical readiness than being prepared for what the NFL is going to. You know, I was very fortunate in the fact that um, like the last year uh, before I separated from the Air Force, six months of that time, I was deployed to, uh, you know, again, flying missions out of Turkey. Mm-hmm. So when you're deployed, I mean, there's not much to do. You're either flying, you've been on a ship, flying missions or I'm working out, you know, mm-hmm. lifting weights, you know, carving up, eating pizzas and, and, and flying. So, I mean, I was able to put on some great weight, was in great shape physically. But, you know, I wasn't in football shape. I was in great physical shape, but not football shape. And that it took me probably three months, you know, just being in camp and and making the team and kind of chipping off that rust, per se. It's kind of like riding a bike. You know, Mm -hmm. skills are there. But remember, I I left a where the speed of the game in the NCAA and the collegiate level was here. And it's, you know, 10 feet above that the speed of the game and working with the best of the best mm-hmm. and, and against the best of the best. Cause you look at on those teams that I play with the Cowboys is what seven hall of famers yeah. and going up against guys in practice that were perennial all pros, you know, Larry Allen, the best lineman I think ever in the game, in my opinion, hall of famer, I'd have to go up against him all the time in practice. So it, mm-hmm. it, it, it made me better by playing against the best. I love that. There's an interesting little piece, though, in what you're saying, Chad, because, you know, when you go against someone who is who is the best or maybe better than us, instead of shrinking from that opportunity, and that gives us a chance to rise up and grow. We may never we never be at the at the level of our opponent, but yet we gain so much just even if it's in a mindset perspective or even resilience, because we continue to refine ourselves. And you said chip away the rust. And it sounds like that was a great scenario for you, really, because I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but did you feel like you had to kind of prove yourself like practice by practice to be on that team? Because that I mean, that was that was an incredible team. I think for me, you mentioned mindset. Mindset is so, so key that, you know, there's two types of mindsets, in my opinion. There's a fixed mindset where, hey, it is what it is. I'm only going to get I'm never going to get any better. I mean, this God bless me with these talents. Mm-hmm. that's it. I mean, I'm also well not even try versus the growth mindset where, Hey, I know I can get better. I may not be the best at it, but I can get better at whatever I do. Mm-hmm. I may not be you know, professional at playing the piano, but you know, I can play and I can learn and I can, I can continue to grow and to learn. And for me, life's a continual set of experiences mm-hmm. and to pursue new thoughts and, and new knowledge. And for me, initially getting out there in the practice field, a lot of it wasn't, it was more proof to myself that I could do it. Of course, I had to prove to the coaches and to, you know, the front office folks that I had it, you know, they granted me more grace because, you know, I hadn't played the game in over four, four and a half years. Mm-hmm. But for me, I put a lot of pressure on myself to perform and I wanted to get out there and prove that, you know, I, I could still do it and that I could excel at that, that next level. Yeah. And with that team, I, I just wondered too, how difficult, I mean, three Super Bowls, which one was the most difficult? It's from an individual and a team perspective. Like, and of course, you're, it's just your individual perspective and it's a team and everybody has their own little. Well, you know, the, the first one, like anything is, I mean, the first Super Bowl for me was the most difficult because like anything in life, it was the first one. Hmm. Didn't have any experience to base it on. How should I react? How do I prepare for the game? You know, and that was where coach relied a lot on our coaches and coach Johnson. He uh, was very emphatic about this is just another game. Granted, it's the, it's going to be the most televised sporting event, you know, in the world, mm-hmm. you know, most, in particularly most certainly in this country that, um, you know, it's, there's a lot riding on this, uh, but it's just like any other game. It's still 11 guys versus 11 guys on each side of the game, uh, each side of the ball. And we're going to get out of it. Who cares? There's going to be a hundred, 1,000 people in the stands, right. you know, cheering you on. But 
The second and the third one were a lot easier because I've been there, done that. I know how to prepare myself. And I, you can kind of suppress the butterflies a little bit and the anxiety and the fear going into it and be able to face it because, you know, I've been there. I know what to expect. I guess, you know, that makes sense. And especially the third one, I guess the, the danger would be being complacent, just going to the other side of that. But when you're up against something, I mean, at the level of the Super Bowl, I think the complacency is probably the farthest thing from your mind. Because for us in those teams, particularly the Cowboys those early years, our mindset, again, our goals were to win the Super Bowl, not just, hey, win our division, mm-hmm. or win the conference or just win games. We knew we wanted to be Super Bowl champions. And when that's your ultimate goal, um, you know, everything falls in. I mean, that's your sole purpose. So there's no letdowns after you, you know, win the conference or win your division and then you win the conference. No, because it's always one more ladder to climb, one more rung of the ladder to get to. And that's as high as you can go in that game. So I know that, that for you, excellence is a really big deal. And so uh, just because I, I have seen your website and stuff like that, where excellence, you pursue excellence. What does excellence look like for uh, just for a man generally? What, what should a man pursue if he wants to be an excellent man? Amen. You know, this has been my passion because I've asked myself that question. I've been able to accomplish and achieve a lot of different things. I've done a lot of different quote unquote occupations. I've been a student athlete, fighter pilot, football player, you know, now businessman, public speaker. I've done a lot of different things. And I realized, who am I? You know, and we all ask ourselves that question, who am I? Mm-hmm. And I realized that what I did did not define who I was. Mm-hmm. You know, as an individual that professes a belief in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that's my identity. Mm-hmm. That's the filter in which I process everything, my thoughts, my words, my experiences, everything through that filter, that prism. So for me to live a life of excellence, no matter what I did, whether it was no matter what I do in life, for me, excellence is defined by knowing your identity, who you are, Mm. follow through by that living a life of character and integrity. Mm. That's it. That's excellence. Because Mm. there's some days physically, you're just not going to have it. You know, it's to be your best self every day, to encourage others around you to do the same. And the organizations that you're affiliated with, that may be family, company, team, encourage it to rise to a higher noble purpose or cause. Hmm. So with all that, it doesn't matter how much you accomplish, how much money you make, um, or your failures in life. If you pursue it every day that you know who you are in Christ, again, if, as a Christian person, man, mm-hmm. Father of Jesus Christ, your identity, followed by that character and integrity piece, live each day to its fullest and be honest you know, be self-effacing, courageous, mm-hmm. willingness to listen to others, all those virtuous traits that we pursue. And that's what's living a life as excellence is all about. And that means a lot coming from you, Chad, because you've been given an opportunity to put on a bunch of hats or a bunch of identities. I mean, you went to a service academy. There's a level of prestige there. You know, you, you were a pilot. I've been around a lot of pilots. And I would just say that there's a lot of opportunities not to be humble. Okay, so there's just not from the from the folks that I've been around and not all of them. Of course, I'm just I'm, I, I am speaking from my experience, but yet I'm, I'm also not casting a wide net over everyone. But yet I know that there's a there is a level of prestige there because not everybody makes it in. And certainly not everybody makes it in to fly A-10s and then to go into the NFL. Not everybody even makes it into the NFL and then not everybody wins a Super Bowl in the NFL. So there's a lot of opportunities for you to take on lesser identities. But yet what means so much about what you're saying is those things are great and they were occupations, but when your identity is in Christ, what you're telling us is you're not going to falter to those lesser things. Yeah. Cause I can tell you, I've been around a lot of individuals, those fighter pots, those individuals you talk about, you know, those athletes that have made a lot of money, have been all pro, you know, have climbed to the pinnacle of success, but yet, when you open the kimono, when you peel back the layers, you know, there, there's no fulfillment in what they, in their lives, their relationships with their wives, their kids is, is lacking. You know, they may have addictions. You know, we all have scars and we all go through life and have different pain points. Just because you've reached a pinnacle of success or have had success does not mean 
that you're living life of excellence, nor do you have fulfillment. You know, I always go back to Pascal's quote, you know, paraphrasing that, you know, inside every man is a God-sized vacuum mm -hmm. that only God can fill, right? So it's, what are you trying to fill? Well, how do you, you know, we as men, we rack and stack each other. How much money you make? Mm -hmm. What do you do in life? You know, and that is the total wrong metric <laughs> to measure or stack mm -hmm. yourself up to compare. Well, we should be comparing ourselves to one another. I mean, we should be comparing ourselves first and foremost. Are we following Christ and we modeling mm -hmm. him in our lives as Christians? But man, it's, you know, you get down that slippery slope when you start comparing yourself to others and then it's, it's becomes that performance-based mentality. And that can be, you know, I fell into that aspect as a Christian too, performance-based Christianity. It's all about what I can do for you, Lord. Look at me. Look at all this that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at, at the, the end of the days when God's going to do us and are judging our deeds of second throne, that you know, get away from me for I did not know you because mm -hmm. you're doing it with the wrong motivation and effort. Mm, devastating, devastating, devastating truth right there. And for some, it'll be devastating, put it to you that way. Yeah, it, I, this, the story in the scripture about the, when they elected King Saul and then how contrasting that with King David really came to mind when you were talking just now, Chad, because King Saul, you know, God, God anointed him as king, but the reason why he was king is because he was taller than everyone else. And they thought, well, man, we, if we have a big guy in front of us, how can we go wrong? It wasn't a matter of trusting God. It was trusting the size of that leader. And yet the size of his body obviously was not anywhere proportionate to the size of his heart. He was much bigger man in size than what his heart revealed. And yet you see David who comes, you know, out of the pasture and he comes up and you see that he has, you know, a heart as big as Texas. And yet his size at the time, he's just a, he's just a boy, you know, a teenager most likely, but, and he had, he had obviously had shown some, uh, you know, some, that he had some skills, right. He had already had done some things and, with the bear and the lion and that kind of stuff at this point, but yet you see two completely different internal statures of men. Saul, who would be the, the king they wanted, God anointed him as king. He would lose his throne. David would get the throne. And David, being a smaller guy at the time, showed to have a huge heart and better courage. He's the only person to be referred to as a man after God's own heart. That's awesome. You know, and that's where what God is looking for is, you know, to your point is judging us for our hearts. He wants you to be willing and humble, you know, let him do the work. Cause when we sit there and we, if we accomplish that on our own <clears throat> skill set, our own strength, then pride and hubris sets in. Mm -hmm. And that's where every King, even King David ultimately felt. Mm -hmm. And we got to realize, be that self-awareness that it can happen to anybody. If it happened to the best of the best in the Bibles, it's certainly human nature can happen to us. And that's all the importance, too, of surrounding yourselves with those individuals of men that can accept and hold you accountable and, and affirm who you are as men. And that's yes. you know, one of the reasons why I started Wingman Ministry was, was just for that, because I saw that need in myself that, hey, I, I can fall just as easily as the next guy. And we all have to live with ourselves. We rationalize our behaviors or the thoughts that we have and the words that we say, um, you know, but sometimes it's not best. So we always need that, those sounding boards to bounce things off and to, you know, stand up for one another. Mm -hmm. So wingman, I know that that's a aviation term. So for those of, of uh, the listeners who don't know what that term means, what does that mean as a pilot, your wingman, what, what would they do? We, every time that, whether it was a, a training mission or a combat mission, we'd always go out with a minimum of two jets. Sometimes there was a package of four or, you know, multiple aircraft. And each one of those guys was a wingman, which meant that they were there to support, to uh, help you as work as a team. They were teammates to help you accomplish a specific mission. So we never went solo. You know, there are no lone wolves in the woods. <laughs> Nobody was Rambo or Jason Bourne or Gary Cooper at high noon. We were all there to be support together. And um, because we as individuals, and I'll make this comparison, you don't have that 360 degree view around you. You don't know what's a lot of times what's happening as an aviation term at your six o'clock. We always say, check your six. Because mm -hmm. we're so concentrated on what's in front of us that many times we don't know if somebody's going to come blindside us 
or attack us from the come out of the sun and attack us from our behind. And that's what wingmen do. We're there to support it's it's two heads are better than one and the multitude of counsel there is wisdom. A lot of biblical proverbs for that, but that was my whole word picture or metaphor to use for, for wingman ministry. Because what we were about is again, as I mentioned before, that we are there to accept, affirm, and hold each other accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, here, I'll give you a real world example. Every time that I'd fly a mission uh, in the A-10 in Northern Iraq, we'd fly into a combat zone. We would um, come back into uh, friendly territory and we would do what we called a battle damage check where we would look behind, you know, kind of fly around the individual, see if there's any leaking fluids or hydraulic uh, fluids or any mechanical malfunctions with the, the controls. And, you know, nine times or 99 times out of a hundred, Hey, you look good. But there's been those times where, Hey man, you got some leaking fluid coming out of your right wing root. Uh, we're going to have to watch it over. You know, and for me, Again, a real-world example, when I was flying my initial uh, ferry flight, flying A-10s from England to Turkey, we were flying over the Mediterranean Sea. I just crossed around the boot of Italy, around Sicily, and just south of Greece, and I ended up having a malfunction on my number two, my right engine. Oil pressure gauge was uh, fluttering and eventually went down to zero. I ended up having a bad seal, and I lost uh, a lot of oil, and I lost oil pressure in my right engine, you know, it's just emergency procedure. The A-10 being an underpowered aircraft, you know, is underpowered with two engines, let alone now I'm flying with one. So mm-hmm. my three wingmen that were flying with me, one guy sat there and he read the checklist to me. Okay, this is your emergency procedure. Have you done these things? Another guy's making radio calls. Hey, we need to divert into, we ended up diverting into a naval base, Suda Bay on the mm-hmm. island of Crete. Another guy's navigating, making sure we're, we're where we're supposed to be and helping fly. So we all work together as a team. And they then two jets peeled off and they continued to Turkey. And my wingman then with me sat there and flew with me, helping make sure everything was all right, checking in, making sure we we're doing all the procedures, making radio calls for me. Well, it just allowed me then to fly my jet. Mm. And eventually we, he flew down, we flew down in a fingertip formation. He sat there and he made sure that I was okay. I landed, he went around and came around and landed behind me. You know, and that's the same thing in life that when, when you are going, when life happens to you, maybe an illness, lost your job, uh, relationships, maybe your marriage troubles or you're having troubles with your kids. There are times where you just need men around you to support you, to maybe help you know, feed you scripture, to pray with you, to help process through with life where you don't do anything. You just concentrate on what's in front of you. Maybe they can help you uh, help pay the bills, do whatever it takes. And then, you know, we make sure that you get through that and, and come alongside. And it's the same, you know, as I said, word picture is what we did when we actually were in the world flying, flying actual missions. So, I mean, that, that guys, when they hear that, you know, they get it. That's what it means to be a wing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that story. That's that that really clears it up for anyone who might have been confused as to maybe connecting the dots between the name of the ministry and then also uh, in the flying world. So let me ask you this. So within Wingman, how do you do that? I mean, how do you guys do that? Because I think that's such a needed thing in in our culture right now. And even within the Christian subculture, I think there's there's such a need for, I would say, cross-generational connection. And so there's that seems to be lacking in a lot of churches. It's like older men talk to older men, younger men talk to younger men, and the two shall not cross, you know? Like, how how would, within your work, how do you guys um, see to it and connect those generations? Um, you know, to set the stage, you know, unfortunately today in our society, particularly the American church, you know, they're running it on shoestring budgets. It's typically, you know, the average size church is what, 75 congregants. They have one pastor and maybe an administrative assistant that that pastor is, wears multiple hats and they're just, use another military term, task saturated, mm-hmm. that they can't reach out and establish men's ministry. And most church programs are for kids, you know, Sunday school, vacation Bible school, whatever it might be, and women's, women's Bible studies. You know, men really just feel irrelevant. And that, from that culture, that's what prompted me to, to form Wingman. And what I, our main purpose is, is discipleship. 
We want to encourage men to form those relationships. And how we do that, <clears throat> we do it through a, a relationship funnel. At the top of the funnel, we do, uh, I call corporate events. You know, it's an opportunity for men to kind of dip their toe into community with not much commitment, um, where we have, a, just bring a speaker, we'll typically, you know, do breakfast, we'll be in a venue where it's not a church, it's kind of a quote unquote neutral location. And, and again, we don't f affiliate with any particular denomination or the peer ministry organization, we're just a group of guys that get together. You know, and that's, you know, one day a month, we do these corporate events in multiple locations throughout the country. But the, where the rubber starts to meet the road is you go down this relationship funnel, we do small groups, I call element groups. And these are groups where guys, you know, I don't care. I have two criteria for these small groups. One, keep it Christ centered. Don't get into denominational theological weeds. And two, do a work in the community. So we partner with other prayer ministry, other organizations where guys go out and do prison ministry. They do workspace projects in their community. Whatever. Again, I don't care. I try to keep it simple. But these are where the other three weeks out of the month, opposite the corporate events, where guys get together at, you know, at an IHOP or at a Whole Foods grocery store. I mean, it doesn't matter. And they, again, they, some of them do Bible studies. Some of them will go through a, you know, a book, a devotional or some, you know, just go and, hey, what do you guys, what can we pray about today? I mean, total autonomy and flexibility because everybody, you know, like a church that's pushing content down, it's, this is pushing content up. You guys decide. God talks to you as well as he does to me. Hmm. So after the corporate, the element, and at the neck of the funnel is the one-on-one -on -one discipleship. And this is where I kind of had this revelation a few years ago. Um I had an old dog. It was a German shepherd dog. It was about 10 years old. It was kind of on its last legs. And we got a little puppy, another German shepherd puppy. And that puppy would be running around that dog. And, and, and I'll be darned if it didn't give that older dog new life because he was training, you know, keeping that younger dog in line and teaching him. I mean, do as I do. And I mean, I was like, man, isn't that a great word picture metaphor for our community today where we have a lot of older guys you know, maybe retired or, you know, older baby boomers that have had all this life experiences and they think, you know, God, I made all this money or a successful business. You know, now what? We got a lot of millennials out there too that are craving <coughs> experience that, you know, may not know how to tie a tie or write a resume or just, you know, life skills. They just broke up with their girlfriend thought that life is going to end mm -hmm. and putting them together in an organic manner where, you know, you allow relationships like in that corporate just to happen naturally. Um, it, it, it works because there's fear on both sides. That older guy, why would a young guy be interested in me? I, you know, I'm not quote unquote with it. You know, I'm not mm -hmm. a, in the times. I'm not a big internet guy or video games. And that younger kid's thinking the same thing. Why would that older guy who's had all the experiences even care, you know, about some of the things that I'm going through in life? And when they can get together and just meet once a week, once a month, whatever, over coffee, you know, over lunch, over breakfast, and just ask those questions, how you doing? But be able to look each other in the eye because you can, <laughs> there's always that reticent when you first start off with those relationships where there's, you know, push it back. It's the typical male conversation. How you doing? Great. How's the wife? Kids? Great. You know, how's work? Great. You know, what? that's all I need to know and walk away, right? But where you yeah. can look somebody in the eye and ask them those questions, and then they kind of they don't want to look you in the eye, and they say, "Great," and you say, "Okay, Dad, you know what's going on? What's going on? Tell me." And, and we always we we are very adamant. I call it the Vegas principle. You know what? Truly, what's what's said here stays here. Mm -hmm. And the guys over time develop that trust. And we've had we've had element groups that have been meeting, you know, for fifteen years. And as I said just before this this podcast, I was attending with a group of the guys that they were praying over one of their wingman brothers who's battling Lou Gehrig's disease. And, you know, he's on his last legs, man. And they've been walking with him in prayer and we, you know, just continue to, to meet and to pray. And that's what wingman is about, you know, and it's, and, you know, I set it up that way too, is because it's an opportunity where churches don't have, again, the budget to be able to do it. Essentially they can outsource it to, you know, pair ministry organizations like myself. And there's, there's a lot of them out there where, you know, you can send your small group guys to a wingman function. And then, you know, once a week where they can 
get together with other men in the community and establish that community bond. And then, you know, on the opposite, they can, a pastor can tell them, Hey, we're going to do this book or whatever, you know, raise up a leader that can take ownership in that and, and go with it. So it, it is a great synergistic partnership with the church and, you know, man, we need it. We need it so badly, particularly in today's times. Yeah, I agree with that too. I think that that's the, that is really an epidemic within the church. And I think it's maybe the reason why a lot of guys stray away from Christian manhood. Generally, they're like, it just seems to them, maybe it seems just boring. Like there's nothing for a guy to do, or there's nothing authentic for a guy to do. I love what Stephen Mansfield talks about with a band of brothers and getting guys together. And, and, you know, he has his way of doing it. And, and, and I've read his books on it and stuff like that. I had a, a podcast conversation with him about it and it was really helpful. But what you're saying is helpful too, because you're actually saying that guys have, if, if they would honestly just commit to me, that it's not all that difficult. It's not rocket science. I mean, we have lost that art of relationships. Women do it. I mean, they're, it, they're hardwired for that. For guys, it, they're always a little skeptical, you know, and, and, and as you should be. Because you, you don't just throw your trust out there just blindly or willy-nilly. I mean, you always should have just two to three really close relationships where you can be totally transparent about everything. You don't want to blurt it out to the whole world. But it, you, it, it's not rocket science. And it's the willingness. And here's the thing is you have to be willing to kind of be vulnerable. Dip your toe. That's why I say the corporate aspect. It's, it gives a guy a little bit, dip their toe in the community just to start those relationships because you can't go into a meeting day one and say, here's my sins. Here's everything that I did wrong in my <laughs> right. life. And, you know, what's up with you? You know, you got it. It has to develop over time. Some guys get comfortable with each other after, you know, a couple of weeks, some a couple months, you know, some guys may be a year, who knows, but everybody's different. And everybody's barometer for transparency is different. But the thing is, it's just committing to the time. And that's what we tell our guys is if you want to be a part of this and if you want to start your own element group, you got to find a group of guys where you're going to commit. Hey, we're going to do this for six months. Have a def defined time period. Three months. We're going to commit weekly and we're going to promise each other we're going to do this. We're going to commit to it and hold each other accountable to that. And then if you, know, if you don't click, hey, sometimes you just don't click. But don't give up that there's others out there, guys, that, that you do find. Mm -hmm. you know that are able i mean that you you find common interests with because we have guys that'll do you know big in the prison ministry guys are big in construction some guys are big hunters and fishermen guys some guys are you know like talking about business you know it's, it's whatever there's it's a big world out there and there's plenty of opportunity to establish those relationships yeah absolutely and we need a representative of the kingdom in every one of those spaces and more amen so let me ask you this. So you talk about these events and the funnel, the kind of a relationship funnel and the corporate events and then getting down into the into your your small groups and then the one on one uh, kind of connection discipleship. Where do these take place? Uh, do you do you literally have these groups meeting all over the country? Is this more like in your yeah. area or? Well, we established I never had the intention of, you know, really when I first started this of starting a ministry at all, it was, it was truly out of a selfish need that I had to establish relationships. I wanted to find a group of guys that was, you know, would be willing to walk through life with me. But, you know, I began to see the success of this and we started North Texas. Now we're also in Atlanta. And, you know, with this time of house arrest that we've all experienced <laughs> the past few weeks, um, and church attendance online has just exploded. Because people are wanting to find that authenticity, it's kind of spurred in me that, you know, even us, without having, can be there physically for those corporate events, we've gone online and done virtual Zoom ones or Facebook Live events. Mm -hmm. And that's where I realized that, you know, what well, you and I are having this conversation now, that guys that are separated geographically, you know, you can still have that connectivity, you know, online, get a group of guys together, um, and what I'm saying is this is where we're even pivoting that we're going to do online virtual element groups um, that we can establish. So you can have a guy in LA, well, time change may be a little different to finding the time to get together, yeah. but you know, a guy in New York, guy in LA, guy in Seattle, guy in Dallas, a guy in Chicago that can come together and, and commit. I mean, that maybe old friends from high school that you want to re-engage with. 
because you can pray, you can do it. I mean, you're just, you're limited physically. I mean, limited geographically. Mm -hmm. For a lot of the purposes that we want to accomplish discipleship, you can still verbalize and communicate online. Well, Chad, I'm really thankful that we've had this conversation. I'm thankful that you are doing all this hard work. It's of all the things, I mean, you're a very capable man and with your education and background and work ethic and all the connections that you've made, I'm so thankful that you are pouring into this work and that you're seeing it continue to grow because, uh, you know, we both know that there's an epidemic within men in our country right now, and it takes every one of us to band together to do our part because I, you know, you're going to be able to, to address issues and meet people in different spaces. And I'm going to be able to address other people in different spaces too. So I, I just want to say thank you for the kingdom work that you're doing. I'm grateful for your time and service. And I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. It's been my pleasure. So gentlemen, hopefully you enjoyed that podcast. I'm going to give you just a couple of quick takeaways uh, of from this podcast. Uh, one of those things that Chad had said along the way, he said, a man pursues excellence by knowing who he is and following through by living a life of character and integrity. And he said something I thought was really compelling when he said this, because there's a lot of things that he could have said that uh, would form an identity and a false identity. He says, what I do does not define who I am. And coming from someone who was an A-10 pilot, also inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame, and someone who was uh, also an NFL football player who won three Super Bowls. That means a lot, at least it meant a lot to me. And he also says this, and I'll end with this. He says, surround yourself with men to help you stay accountable. That is how you become a wingman. Thanks for listening to the New Kind of Man podcast. You've been given some good manly encouragement, and now it's your turn. If you found today's content helpful, go tell a friend and please leave us a review. Also, consider hitting that subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode. Now it's time for all of us to do what Theodore Roosevelt said. Create. Act. Get action. Do things. Be sane. Don't fritter away your time. Take a place wherever you are and be somebody. Get action.